0: A man of many meteorological backgrounds, our next guest is taking on a new journey as he steps into the role as the new director of NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Prediction, commonly referred to as NCEP. In today's episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Mike Ferrer, where we will discuss his expectations for the future of NCEP, as well as his past endeavors that have led him to this point. Mike, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: Thank you, Marshall. It's great to be here. It's good to you see. You know, it's just
0: it's interesting because for the listeners, um, Mike and I know, go way back. Actually, we're we're fellow Florida State Seminoles, but not only were we in the same program together, we were literally sitting in the same room taking our doctoral preliminary or qualifying exams, uh, trying to get over that hump to get us into sort of candidacy or, or PhD candidacy world. So, uh, known known Mike for a while. He's been a leader within our field. Um, Mike, I got to ask the question. I ask every every uh, weather geeks guess. How did you become a weather geek?
1: Well, this story is a little interesting. Uh, It was it was not by choice. Uh, I was a a ROTC student when I was going into the Air Force and I was getting my physics degree uh, at Purdue. And uh, I got the call in from the uh, ROTC senior level instructor and said, Mike, you've got your assignment for your first job in the Air Force come into my office and I'll tell you what it is. So I came in and he asked me, uh, what do you and Willard Scott have in common? (laughs) And I went, uh, did he go to Purdue? He goes, no, you're going to be a meteorologist. And I went, what? Uh, so the air force needed meteorologists and they would send people with physical science backgrounds, typically physics or chemistry or even mathematics to get their degree. So it was one of those things where it started, um, uh, and yeah, I, d- I didn't really, wasn't really happy at the beginning because I just spent four years of my life getting a physics degree, but yeah, it didn't take long to realize that meteorology is the physics of the atmosphere. And, uh, and so I developed a love for it. Uh, it took a little while uh, to, to get over the shock of being changed. But my first assignment in the air force was to go back to Penn state for a year, uh, and for a second bachelor's. Um, so I didn't start off as a weather geek, but I am one now. Well, let me just give the listeners a little bit of your background. And by the way, I've known you forever, but I, I'm never
0: quite sure if I'm pronounced. Sometimes I say Ferrar, Sometimes I say Farrar. How do you pronounce it? You pronounce It is Farrar. That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, let me give you a little bit of Mike's background. He has, a, as he mentioned, a bachelor's of science in physics from Purdue University and then uh, on assignment and went back and got a bachelor's from, in meteorology from Penn State. Excuse me, a little tickle in my throat. And then. I guess this is where I I came in contact with you. You got your master's and Ph.D. in meteorology at Florida State University. He's the current director of NOAA's National Center for Environmental Prediction, or NCEP. We'll get all into what that means. And he is the current or I guess now no longer the current. But was the most recent president of the American Meteorological Society, where he just executed, planned uh, the most recent AMS meeting, which was supposed to be held in Houston, but went virtual due to the COVID pandemic. So I want to get all into that. He's the former chief scientist for the United States Air Force and a former vice president and COO at UCAR as well. So you can see Mike has a, an impressive timeline. Let's just, just jump right into AMS because sure. we just came out of the AMS meeting. And I know as a former president myself, I know what's involved in planning that meeting. And literally a couple of weeks prior to its execution, you had to go online. So tell us all about the that decision and how the meeting ended up being.
1: Sure. I mean, we knew um, early on when we were planning this meeting that uh, the covid was not likely to go away and that there was a cyclical nature of waves that was, it happens. So we wanted to plan for the eventuality that uh, if it, we got unlucky uh, and we were in the middle of a peak, that we could fall back to being all virtual. So we planned from the beginning to be high. And we also realized that not everybody was gonna wanna travel uh, and uh, get on a plane, and and or even even if they'd felt safe traveling, not everybody wanted to be in a room for t- a whole week wearing a mask. So we we, we planned for the hybrid meeting early on, uh, and it's like planning for two meetings. It's not just one, it's, so it's a lot of work. Uh, but really what happened was the numbers for this, you know, for the Omicron variant were just, uh, a peaking right at the time where our meeting was going to be. And so we had always told people uh, you vote your own safety. We're going to do, we're going to hold the safe meeting. We actually went and just like the AGU, we required vaccinations. We had a, we had a, a, a arrangement with an applicant, the clear app where we could actually verify that uh, we had a mask mandate. So we were running a very safe meeting, uh, but not every, but in the end, We told people, it's up to you to decide your own personal safety risk. And so once the spike started happening, two things were occurring. Um, Groups were pulling out. Uh, Federal agencies, a couple of them, uh, basically said no travel. Uh, So that cut off some people. Uh, Organizations like universities said, we're not going to have our venue. Uh, Some of the companies started pulling out. Uh, So that was part of it. So the annual meeting was starting to shrink. So it wouldn't have been the same experience. Uh, the other part of it was key people that we needed to run the meeting. They themselves had their own personal issues and uh, their own personal decisions. And they started coming out to so the point we realized we don't have the critical mass to put on the world-class meeting we wanted to. So we, we basically said we, we need to make a decision. So we decided in early January to, um, to, to, to fall back, to be all virtual. However, we did have enough critical mass to safely run the student conference, and it was contained over the weekend. So we did go through with that, and I was very, very fortunate to get to go spend time with uh, the next generation of science leaders in our field, and it was very energizing. Um, and one of the yeah. things I said to them is that a few of them were talking and said, "We're the future," and I actually corrected them. I said, "You're not just the future; you're the present. You're here. Your exactly. You are making a contribution today." So anyway, yeah, that that part went off really well. So they had to fly back to D.C. and pick up on virtual the next morning. So.
0: Yeah, and I'm, i I I know I was in a couple of those virtual meetings and sessions with you. So I and you know I know what it is like to run around in those meetings from popping in. So I'm sure you were virtually popping in quite a few places. Now you had a really interesting theme for your meeting. Tell us about your theme and how you, how you arrived at that and why it was important to you.
1: Yeah. So the theme uh, is a title of, uh, of a, a kind of a, a school of thought. It's called environmental security, and it started in the defense and intelligence community. And it was really what are the national security implications of weather and climate extremes? Uh, and so thing topics of study and policy uh, and thought were well, what happens when the uh, the climate change leads to a change in precipitation or food security, which in turn creates conflict, max migration, which imp- impacts national security. It was kind of that chain of events. But over time, uh, as I as I was living as chief scientist for weather inside the Air Force and, and going to some of these kind of venues, I was finding myself maybe the one or one of only two or three, sometimes the only one you know, physical or atmospheric scientist in the room it was fascinating kind of this, this world. And I really wanted to t- bring that to the AMS and have, I think intuitively, we all kind of know what the downstream impacts of what our discipline is, but we don't get to spend time with these people in the UN or people in the, uh, NGOs and development organizations, or even people in, the, in the, the security spaces to really see those connections. So I wanted to bring them to us and have them talk to us uh, with our, with, with our physical scientists, um, uh, and so that's why i made that selection it's uh if you think about it it's something that you care a lot about with your you know your urban scale research and, and there's a lot of disproportionate impacts on vulnerable populations and that's not just in you know the developing world that's right here in the united states um and so there, there really is a, an intersection with environmental justice so uh, we have we we've, we've talked about that in in some um in some ways, at individual uh, seminars or or sessions within the AMS. We wanted to elevate this to the higher level for the theme. And our hope is that now that we've kind of brought these communities together, that we can keep enough of them coming back to the AMS, and we might want to make this an annual event, not for the theme every year, but maybe turn this into an an annual symposium on environmental security. We were able to partner with the water security, uh, the water quality, excuse me, no, no, excuse me, water resources uh, committee. There's committees on uh, re- renewable energy within the AMS. And so we were able to have joint sessions with them. Also health and environment as a board of environment and health in the AMS. So we were able to pull all those together, and kind of talk about these kind of human security and national security applications. And uh, I think we could probably keep this going. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I I really appreciated the topic. I was able to even give a talk in one of the sessions on some of our work on some of those disproportionate impacts of urban heat in the Atlanta Mm -hmm. area. Uh, Now, I want to pivot to your current role and I want to explore some of your previous roles too, but for the listeners of Weather Geeks, I mean, we have a pretty savvy listening audience. Shout out to all of our Weather Geeks listeners. Um, but we also have some that kind of pop in and may not be familiar with what NSEP is. Tell sure. us, give us the 101 on what NOAA's National Centers of Environmental Prediction are.
1: Sure. I'll start with a little high level of the weather service. The way we're kind of organized is we have uh, 122 local forecast offices and 13 river forecast centers. And they're, these are local to regional, uh, focusing on weather and hydrology. Uh, and they have, the, they, they really focus heavily on the local impacts and local forecast. Now, to, to supplement that and to partner with them, we have nine national centers, and they have national scope, but they're organized under functional lines. And so everybody has heard of the National Hurricane Center because they're on TV a lot, and, they, and uh, as they should be. Uh, but not everybody knows all the other national centers. And so one who also, I think, if you watch the Weather Channel uh, or you know, AccuWeather and all these other kinds of – or even your local networks, you, you hear references to the Storm Prediction Center, and that's in Norman, Oklahoma – It focuses on uh, severe weather and tornadoes. There's also the Aviation Weather Center in Kansas City, which does a lot of aviation guidance products uh, and forecasting in conjunction with not only the local forecast offices, but with the FAA. Uh, And then finally, our other center outside of the D.C. area is the Space Weather Prediction Center. Uh, And they deal with impacts of solar events, things like solar flares and geomagnetic storms, uh, and those impacts on things like the power grid and uh, and actually even human spaceflight, because uh, there's radiation in the upper atmosphere, obviously. Um, then there are, there are other the remaining five national centers are all co-located together uh, in College Park, Maryland. Three of them are also continuing operational output products. So it's the Weather Prediction Center, uh, which focuses on things like extreme precipitation and winter storms. There's also the Ocean Prediction Center, which deals with maritime of the open ocean, uh, which is really important to uh, industry as well as uh, safety and motor safety. Uh, there's the Climate Prediction Center, which in some sense may be misnamed. It's really more in the seasonal to subseasonal scale. And they look at deviations from norm uh, for things like temperature, precipitation, et cetera, uh, as well as also probabilistic things for short term, you know, our long-term weather forecast like week two week three and then the other two centers are more cross-cutting one is my old center that used to be the, the, the uh, director of Etsy environmental modeling center and they're the partners with uh our our NOAA research labs and NCAR and other places where things were either developed inside the environmental modeling center or they were transitioned to operations from our partners and the in research labs and the last one is NCEP central Operations. Uh, or NCO for short, and they run all of the computer systems. Uh, over a few years ago, we did a reorganization. They brought in all the dissemination systems under their, so how we move data across the country. So it's kind of a central clearinghouse for our IT central processing and dissemination function. So those collection of nine centers are NSEP. So it's really, these are very strategic. Uh, they all have uh, you know national significance and they, they kind of help the whole thing work. And they're also, I would say, the the critical mass of expertise the world's greatest you know operational weather uh hurricane forecasts are in the hurricane center the same thing can be said for tornadoes uh, and severe weather at spc etc man that sunset is gorgeous
0: grill patio sunset hard to get better than that unless you're browsing carvana's inventory while you soak it all in
1: oh burger time
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Fierro from NOAA's INSEP. And I really appreciate that high level overview that you just gave, because I find that even, you know, as someone at a university teaching weather-attentive, weather-enthusiastic students, they don't really understand the structure of our federal weather system from the, the, the forecast offices and the prediction centers and so forth. You know, even as we're as we're taping this episode, Mike, there's a big winter storm uh, affecting the middle part of the country into the Midwest. I, I was watching it because you know, we were trying to make decisions of whether my daughter and my wife are going to head to Ohio for a volleyball tournament. Um, and I heard people asking about someone even asked me, what, what, who do you believe the European model or do you believe the American GFS model? And I, I know, you know, this sort of discussion that goes on in the weather world, because people believe that these models are the only two models used and that one is significantly better. I mean, one is statistically better right now, but I know there are things going on. So I guess this question for you is because getting into one of your centers is sort of where are we in the U S on our modeling
1: capacity? Sure. Um, And so you often, you mentioned the, the, the uh, comparison of what, often referred to in the media as the America model. It's usually you're talking about our global forecast system or GFS. That's our, our global model. And then of course, the European model from our friends at the European Center for Medium Range Forecasting or ECMWF, often referred to as the Euro model. Frankly, th- those two models are two of the best in the world. You also have our friends at the, U- at the UK's Met Office with their unified model. Uh, those are typically the three, you know, um, top-of-the-line, world-class global models. But as you know, Marshall, there's also regional models. We have the high res Rapid Refresher, HER, that's been a continued development in partnership with the Earth Systems Research Lab out in Boulder. Uh, And originally, a lot of that was for convection, sponsored by the FAA. So that's kind of an interagency collaboration. We've got our old North America model, or NAM, which is based on a different dynamic core. That's been frozen for a few years. Uh, because we're trying to transition to this new unified forecast system, which you, uh, your listeners have probably heard about. But even though the NAM has been frozen and not been developed in the last four or five years, it's still adding independent value because uh, the whole thing about modeling is that um, you know, whether or not you run just a, an ensemble or even just deterministic, you, it's really rare to actually capture all of the ra- uh, range of possibilities in the uncertainty space. So the NAM still is adding value, and then we bring in other models as well. Um, I think the question on who to believe, I would say believe your, your National Weather Service forecaster uh, and not look at the models per se because uh, our, our trained meteorologists and our, our experts are being able to track what's happening in real time. Uh, and in, in they're providing the official forecast. We look at the Weather Service's models or guidance, but the forecaster a forecast comes from the forecaster. Uh, And so that's who I would believe.
0: You know, Mike, it's interesting because even this morning before I got on this podcast, I was looking at the National Weather Service, Wilmington, Ohio's latest forecast projection on ice totals and snow. And yet I had I saw a person underneath their comment, comment. said, there's no way your 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 ice and snow totals are are right because the the euro model is showing this. And I, I just thought that was so bizarre because here's this sort of obviously someone that looks at the models because everyone can see them, but perhaps doesn't understand the nuances that, the, that you have to take the model guidance and then apply your expertise, mm-hmm. geographic understanding, um, temperature of the surfaces and so forth. So, you know, have you seen this challenge and how, how, how do we, you know, everyone has access and that's fine, but you, you know, I, I caution my students at university of Georgia and I wrote about this in Forbes this week too. Don't just become model zombies. You've right. got to actually use your expertise and your, meteorological nuance now i mean it's important and, and good that we have our enthusiasts and folks out there looking at the models like heck, my mom even looks at the models some now but uh, you know it, you can't just
1: take them as black box is that right exactly exactly uh, you know in some sense I, I think this is just sort of the way of the world now uh, i don't think there's um anything that we can or should do about it i it, I, I think as meteorologists we can be frustrated by you know you know, someone's post that, you know, talks about something just like the example you gave is a perfect example that happens all the time. I, I think our forecasters are used to dealing with that. Uh, they just, they, they, stay focused on the mission, uh, and, uh, and the forecast of the day. So, yeah, I think it's just with, with, uh, the internet and everything being available in real time. I think this, this is just a, this is just one of those things that we, that is part of reality that, that is to me is, is, not a big deal. I, I I welcome that because really what it does is it gives an exposure. Uh, it, it, like you said, we're using the word weather enthusiast, and get, people do get excited about the weather. It does generate interest. Um, I don't think it's that big of a distraction. I, yeah. I think our forecasters know how to deal with it. They do.
0: Um, you mentioned, you know, model development. I, I, many of our listeners may not but I realized that there's something, you know, there's sort of this community or unified effort going on for model development. Now, I, I don't know if it's still called Epic or not. I know that's what it was called at some point. Give us an update
1: on where that all is. Sure. So um, this started with the the, the scientific upgrade to our global model, the GFS, the global forecast system. And when it was time to do a major change from the old spectral model to a new dynamic core Uh, We made the decision several years ago, rather than just create another model, a global model, which is owned and operated by NOAA, we wanted to go down the path of making it a community model, much like things like WARF that was maintained by NCAR. So we wanted to involve the community. And when I say community, I'm talking about the research labs, university researchers, postdocs, grad students, you name it. We wanted... That broader community to be able to take our model, experiment with it, create new things, and then in the in, in, and then in the end, be able to contribute back and make our operations better. Uh, so that was the approach that we took. Uh, so we're still going down that path. the The model has been released, um, uh, so it's out there on GitHub. You know, researchers can go download it, or run it, uh, and uh, and so that part of it's working. Uh, in the future, we're going to be transitioning most of our modeling systems, which are now independent, like the, her, we're going to try to, we're working on a next generation, uh, mesoscale model that'll be part in this unified framework. So that's one of the things that's coming next.
0: Yeah. So this, this is really, uh, you know, talking with Mike for from for, um, Noah, Insep, director of NCEP. I mean, he's, he's giving some, he's dropping some serious meteorological knowledge that I just hope the weather geeks listeners are understanding because, you know, you, First of all, something he said earlier is that, you know, the American model, the, the GFS model, again, it's it's actually all, somewhat disingenuous just to say the American model, because there's several American models at right. different scales, uh, you, her and NAM and GFS and so forth. But the American model that you know, I think that people talk about in comparison to the Euro is a world-class model. The way I always compare it is, just, look, you're, it's like you're comparing a, a Ferrari and a Lamborghini. They're both really good cars, fast cars, right? You know, some have strength, some have we both have their strengths and weaknesses because I just I get the sense that there's this sort of sort of feeling among the public that that there are these dramatic differences and they're not they're nuanced differences sometimes the euros better in, in certain cases sometimes the GFS is better but I want to pivot now Mike to your you've been in other parts of the the, the federal system as well at the Air Force I guess as the chief. Uh, Scientist for the US Air Force. You've been the vice president and COO for the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, or UCAR. Um, Tell us, just enlighten us about how those roles differed from your current role at NSAP. And, you know, in in any way did they prepare you for this role? And and are they dramatically different in other ways?
1: That's a good question. Um, I try to look at the, when someone asks me what I do, uh, other than, you know, the typical government thing, which is go to meetings uh, <laughs> and, and read emails or write emails. but okay. No, I mean, really, I think the common thread for most of my jobs in the last 20 years has been is being a leader and a manager of, of scientific based organizations. That's kind of the common thread. So in some ways, all of those jobs have, have been had that common thread. It was a leadership management role, but it was within the context of a scientific mission. And so there's other thing between the Air Force and uh, the National Weather Service. We there's a lot of weather forecasting going on in both Uh, missions were different. Um, But in the end, it's a mission focused, uh, you know, so all the people in the organization kind of coming together for a common mission going in the same direction. That's kind of what drew me to this, the public service aspect and the mission oriented part. So in some way, all of those jobs have have been uh, had those common threads. Um, and so I, I've, I've learned, you know, from mistakes, and I've learned from successes for myself. And then I've seen others' mistakes and other successes, and tried to emulate uh, the successes and avoid the, you know, the mistakes. But I mean, every job I've had, i I've, I've it's been informative, and I've learned from it, uh, and it's helped me be a better person at my next job.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Ferrer from NOAA's Incept. A question that a student asked me one time, Mike, and I think you're the right person to answer the question. Um, who in, in a situation where you have a severe storm uh, emerging or perhaps an outbreak, um, can you talk about what the role is of SPC? and the weather forecast office who's issuing the warnings and watches how's that information exchange cascading and, and or is it is, or is it two way
1: that is a really good question i mean as i mentioned earlier the uh, you know the world's experts at severe weather are you, you won't find more in any one location than you will at uh, in norman oklahoma not just the storm prediction center which is the folks at work of with me at NSAP, but also they have a research partners there, the National Severe Storms Lab, part of NOAA Research. They're all co-located in one facility there. So uh, the mission though of SPC, they're looking out in the future. They're looking at conditions that are uh, that are that are right for the formation of severe weather. So they're looking at the one, two, three day period. Uh, so they're looking a little further out. So they're giving an early notice to their weather forecast offices and. And they're also doing things in a probabilistic sense. They're not put, they're not issuing a warning for this county. What they're doing is, are if you if you're looking at their products, uh, these are the probabilities of conditions of a right for formation of severe weather and at, at what level. Uh, that gives the weather forecast offices in those uh, areas uh, an early look, so they start paying closer attention. When we start getting down to within the day or day of or the day before. There is a lot of collaboration. We have, um, you know, we do have collaboration that we have it on the phone. We have it through uh, chat, NWS chat, uh, and other venues where we can talk it together before those are done. But when it gets right down to looking at the radar and there's a hook echo or the, or, or a, a tornado is imminent and the forecast is, the warnings issued for your local area, that is definitely the responsibility of our weather forecast offices. But we're we're kind of a big team in the Weather Service, so we each, we each play our roles, and we uh, we you know we talk closely together as, as we do them.
0: Yeah, and I remember this sort of handoff issue really took national stage in Hurricane Sandy. Uh, there was this discussion about well, who should be warning as the storm transitioned to a from a hurricane to a mid latitude system. So I think you know, I think everyone learned quite a bit about that messaging yeah. and transition. Um, a, as NSEP Director, I mean we're sort of getting to the end of the podcast here, but I want to. As as in your new role as Incept director, what are your broad goal? What, I mean, you know, what do you hope to sort of in your with your finger on the on the pulse here, or your your hand on the on the, the throttle? What do you hope to accomplish in the next few years as an Incept director?
1: Well, actually, I have been at this job, believe it or not, for thirteen months. So I think wow, it's passed. not as new as we thought. Yeah, yeah I passed the new. I, I could use that. Uh, I'm the new person uh, excuse for. <laughs> For a while I can't use that anymore, so I, actually, I think your statute of limitations it's <laughs> run out, but but that's still a good question. We we uh we just spent a really the last six months we pulled together a team from uh subject matter experts and you know, mid career uh, folks throughout all our nine centers. Uh, we we were been working on a strategic plan so the future of, of NCEP that we that kind of fits with under underneath the, the broader vision from the weather service and NOAA, and so. We're looking for one to work on our infrastructure. I mean, uh, just like uh, other places in government, you know, we've been stressed by this uh, stealth cut of uh, flat budgets for many years. Uh, So, you know, it it hasn't really kept up with inflation.
0: Can you before you move on from that? Because I know what you mean, your listeners. What do you mean by stealth
1: cut? Yeah. So if if you if your budget stays the same every year it seems like you're okay. But in the end, if your expenses are going up and things that you don't have any discretion over, whether it's a um, you, you know, federal employee you raise or, or, or lease rents or uh, IT service charges, uh, essentially the, the amount that you have that you're able to spend discretionary to, to make improvements gets smaller and smaller. And so th- th- we're not unique in the weather services. This this happens in, in state, local, and federal government. Oh, it's and across right? the government. Yeah, right, Across everywhere. Yeah. So we've been dealing with that. So it's really down. After a while, we have some infrastructure challenges with our IT, uh, with our ability to have uh, staff being able to keep up with the workload. So we're really trying to get our infrastructure improved and working within the confines of the way our uh, uh, within within the confines of what uh, Weather Service and NOAA. We're looking to embrace uh, and really exploit new science capabilities. Uh, so we we want to continue to to modernize and up our game in science as well as take advantage of Of emerging opportunities, such as we we now finally have the computers powerful enough and uh, enough data to actually make some of these machine learning and artificial intelligence applications do things that theory has been talking about for decades. It's actually become possible now. Um, We're looking at um, really uh, looking at our number one resource, our people, and how we can do a better job of of hiring and retaining a diverse workforce um, and uh, and also succession planning. We, we have, uh, like a, a lot of other places, we've got a, a, a the baby boomers are starting to retire. COVID accelerated that. Uh, so there's a whole new generation of folks we're trying to bring on. But we want to, uh, so this, we have a lot of things to work on. Um, some of them are unique to NSEP, but for the most part, there's things that you might see common across the weather service and, and NOAA, and frankly, a lot of places across the federal government. Yeah. Where, where, Mike, where can people find more information or follow you or
0: on social media or Or Is there an NSEP? I know there's an INSEP website, but I know the individual centers have their own handles and websites too, which mm-hmm. you probably uh, can't rattle, but is uh, any particular places, uh, on, online or in social media you want to point out?
1: Sure. I mean, uh, we do have a. You can Google, you know, NSEP, NWS, NOAA, and it goes right to our page. And that's actually one of the things on our list. We need to modernize our websites too. Um, uh, but you can go and find uh, the link to the main NSEP page that way pretty easily. Um, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the centers uh, have their own Twitter handles and Facebook pages. They're, they're pretty easy to find. You can find me on Twitter at you know Mike Farah underscore WX for weather, you know, uh, and uh, let me see what else. Um, yeah, that's that's it. it you can probably do, and some of our individual directors uh, like you know Ken Graham of the Hurricane Center, and I think others have you know have some presence on Twitter uh, and and LinkedIn and Facebook. But uh, so you, we, you can find it.
0: Yeah, it's, you're pretty easy to find. And I appreciate, Mike, the fact that you're senior administrator within NOAA and are active in social media because I, it's, it's the generation right. we need to be there. I mean, and I, as you know, I am as well. I, I I still cringe when I hear some folks in our field say, well, I don't do that new stuff or that. <laughs> you've got to be there. I mean, that's just where we need to be. So I really want to thank you for joining us. Before I let you go, though, we, we don't have a geek of the week this week, but I do want to give a big shout out and welcome to Dalton Mullinax, who has recently joined the Weather Channel and And I I know I helped prepare some of the uh, notes for this episode. So shout out to Dalton Mullinax, who's, by the way, I have to mention in a weather dog, a graduate of my program at the University of Georgia. Uh, But Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather
1: Geeks podcast. Thank you. It's been my my pleasure to to do it today. Really enjoyed it. Hope, hope to do it again sometime.
0: Absolutely. And uh, again, thank you all for listening. Continue to join us. We've got some really. I've I've seen the slate. We have some really awesome guests, including Mike and others, coming up this year, twenty twenty two. You you will not be upset when you tune in. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time.